Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. This is the second part of a two-part series on how sex is filmed for television shows and movies. If you haven't listened to part one yet, go back to the previous episode and come back when you've finished. Today, we're going to expand our understanding of what an intimacy coordinator actually does. As I mentioned last time, intimacy coordinators carefully choreograph sexual and intimate scenes to ensure respect and safety for the performers. So let's talk about what they actually do, the nuts and bolts of it all. My guest is going to paint a picture for you of what it's really like to be on set, the conversations that happen between all of the parties, the common concerns that come up when filming a sex scene, as well as how to make a highly choreographed and scripted sex act appear both authentic and hot. I am joined once again by Marcy Leroff, who has worked as a casting director, producer, and acting coach for more than 40 years. Her extensive credits span more than 60 films and television series. In 2019, she completed an extensive training course and is now a certified intimacy coordinator. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. Get hard for the holidays with FirmTech. Their performance ring is designed to boost your sexual stamina and give you harder, longer lasting erections while also enhancing pleasure. Their tech ring has the added benefit of tracking your erectile health when synced with FirmTech's free mobile app, which monitors changes in erection duration, hardness, and more. Take control of your sexual health while increasing sexual performance and satisfaction at the same time. To learn more, check the show notes or visit myfirmtech.com and be sure to use my exclusive discount code, Justin20, to save 20% off your purchase. What are you waiting for? Ring in the new year with FirmTech. If you love the science of sex as much as I do, consider becoming a friend of the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. The Kinsey Institute is the world's premier research organization on sex and relationships, and you can help them continue the legacy of Dr. Alfred Kinsey, whose pioneering research changed everything we think we know about sex. Visit kinseyinstitute.org to make an impact. Your donations can help support ongoing research projects on critical topics. You can also show your support by following Kinsey Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for supporting Sex Science. So Marcy, in our previous conversation, we talked about the history of Hollywood sex scenes and the rise of intimacy coordinators. So I'd like to talk more now about what being an intimacy coordinator is actually like and what the job entails. So when you get hired for a gig, what is the first thing you do? You know, and what happens in that pre-production phase at the very beginning? Where does your job start? Well, first off, I jump up and down that I got the gig because (laughs) I have to tell you right now, the marketplace is really oversaturated with a lot of intimacy coordinators. I work out of Los Angeles, but I also work in various locations if, if they don't happen to have an IC there. And so I'm really grateful when I actually get a job. But how do I start is first I break down the script. I read the script and I flag every scene that has intimacy. And it it could be literally just a kiss uh, because I started this just before COVID hit and then during COVID. And so anytime two actors, actors are touching, 
we have to be extra careful. So I will flag these scenes that have any intimacy. It could be self-pleasure, such as masturbation. It could be childbirth, you know, as intimate as that to help an actor get through that. And then I will talk to the director about each of those scenes and really break it down as specific as possible. Many are not prepared to talk about it and want to do as much on the day as they possibly can. Uh, many want to really get in there and, and go through all the details. And I ask questions like, you know, what is the tone of the scene? What is the story that you're trying to tell? If you had your wish, what sort of level of nudity would you have? Specifically, what body parts? I mean, we get very, we drill down on the, on, uh, the nudity because we have to do a nudity rider, which is attached to the actor's contract that will show all of the specific body parts that will be seen along with the simulated sex act and what that is. And so we drill down, down as much as possible to the point of, we'll see breasts excluding nipples. We'll see rear below the waist nudity, but just two inches of the butt crack, you know, so like really, <laughs> really, specific. really, really, really specific. This helps the actor feel in control one, and it gives us some, us as the filmmakers, some boundaries of, of what we can do on the day. Uh, so we go over the scenes, find out exactly what they want, what story they're telling. And I get a vibe from the director about how they're going to be, they're going to be on set. And if they happen to know how they're going to shoot it, many times they don't know ahead of time, but we'll just talk about it generally. And then I will talk to the actors on a private one-on-one to relay all this information, to see how they feel about it, to get their ideas. I'll do very much similar to when you first meet a psychologist and they do an intake interview with you and they get your life story and they find out, you know, where you're coming from and any areas that might be danger. You know, if I'm working on a scene that's a rape scene, I would talk to the actor about their life and if they have any issues with this and any experience with this, just so that I know going in, what I'm dealing with, with the actor so that I can take extra special care of them. And we'll discuss the body parts and we'll discuss, do you have any injuries? You know, like, let's say they have a bad knee, then I'm going to make sure not to put them on their knees in the choreography. We talk about their needs, how they'd like me to be on set. Do you want me to check in after each take? Do you want me to like stay back and wait for you to call me? Because I'm, I'm kind of like hovering around like a little, <laughs> a little nap, you know, here's a mint, or, you know, we need to cover this or, or, you know, do you need a break? So it's basically just to get all of their information and to make sure that they're completely comfortable with the scene. And then I go back to the filmmaking team and say, yes, we're, we're great. Or I say they're really not comfortable with this. And here's a suggestion for a workaround. And then I'll go back and forth until we're all on the same page. And then I reach out to the business affairs department and I give them the wording for the nudity writer. They'll draft the nudity writer and the new ruling that we helped put into the 2020 sag after contract is this 48-hour rule about the nudity writer. And what it is, is that the production has to give the actor the nudity writer at least 48 hours ahead of the shooting day. And that has to be signed before we shoot. But on the day, production can't ask the actor to do anything in addition to what's on this page. So what used to happen is an actor would agree to do a scene and they'd show up on the day and some producer they'd never met before comes in and said, 
but no, I need you to see you totally naked and screwing all these guys over there. And the actor's like, wait, I didn't agree to that. And they said, well, you did it on your last movie. And so we're there to make sure that consent is followed and consent doesn't follow you around. Meaning just because you did this on your last movie, doesn't mean that you're going to do it today. And even though you consented to it yesterday, it doesn't mean that you're going to consent to it today. And so if they want to do something in addition to what's on the rider, it sets the clock back another 48 hours. There's no production ever wants to do that. And so it kind of keeps everything in its lane. What I like to do to protect us, the production, so that we don't paint ourselves into a corner and not be able to do what we want to do, is we we ask everything that we can possibly think of ahead of time. You know, will you do this A, B, C, and D, and get that on the writer so that at least we have that there. We don't have to necessarily do it, but we'll ha- we'll have that there as a you know a list of things that we can do. But we have to stick to what is on the writer. Now that didn't exist before, and that's a huge thing that SAG did to protect their membership. Another thing that exists in the contract that most actors, this has existed for a while, most actors don't know this, is that they have the right to say no on the day, even if they've signed all the papers and we're in the middle of the scene. Let's say we're shooting a scene, you've agreed to do everything, something happens and you, who knows what it is, but something sends you into a little bit of a panic and you go sideways and you're like, I can't do this. I'm out. So if you have an intimacy coordinator, they can come in, talk to the actor, hear what the problem is, try and find a compromise so that we continue doing the scene. But if the actor is just full on like, no, I'm out of here. We then have to stop and production can go and hire a body double and the body double can't do anything more than what the actor had agreed to do on their nudity rider. So the, the body double can't come in and misrepresent what the actor had agreed to do. The production has the right to use the footage that we shot up until that point where the actor says no. So your no is a very powerful thing. And I think actors have to learn how to, how to say it because it's kind of antithetical to who they are. Actors are hardwired to say yes. Not just yes, but yes and. What else can I do for you? And so it's very hard for them to learn how to say no. And your no is very powerful and it doesn't have to come with an explanation. Okay, so we we get the, uh, the writer settled. And then I work with the wardrobe department to find out what the actor's going to be wearing that day. Because if we have a scene where, you know, sometimes it makes sense for the woman to be wearing a dress. So there's easy access. We need to talk to each other to make sure they're wearing what makes sense for what the director wants within the scene. Also, they help supply the modesty garments. And what the modesty garments are is they cover up your uh, genitals. So there's a rule with the FCC. So this is in America anyway, that the Federal Communications Commission, that you can't have genital on genital contact. So anytime you see a couple having simulated sex, there's something in between. And it is for those with a penis, it's it's called a pouch or sometimes a cock sock. And it's like a little pouch with a drawstring. And for those with a vulva, it's something like a uh, G-string without the sides. And it's generally attached with double-sided adhesive. And so we give those needs to the wardrobe department on the day. Sometimes wardrobe helps actors get into that. Mostly it's the intimacy coordinator that helps them get into them because it's kind of a little tricky. Then I check in with the actors again. Are you cool with what's going on today? And we discuss it again. I'm always checking in with them. 
And then we get to set and we do what's called a blocking rehearsal, which is where we basically choreograph the scene. We just budget-wise generally do not have time to choreograph ahead of time. So we really do it in the moment. And we go through the moves just slowly and succinctly. And we talk about where are we touching today and what kind of touch and what type of pressure and how fast and I'll count out beats. Uh, we talk about kissing, tongue or no tongue. Generally, actors are not kissing with tongue. But if they are, you certainly want to know about it ahead of time. You don't want your partner to suddenly be jamming their tongue down your throat. No surprise tongue. Yeah, and you hadn't discussed that beforehand. And so all of these things that are planned ahead make it so that when we do the scene, there's a lot less anxiety because you know what's coming. I'm also there to ensure that they have a closed set. And what a closed set is, is only the essential crew will be there. Now, imagine on a set, there are hundreds of people walking around. And there's also these monitors all over the set that so that we can watch and see what's going on. We don't have to be exactly in the room. And so we have the grips tent and flag put flags around the monitors so that only essential crew can be, there's like a list that I have of only essential crew that are on the close set list can watch. So some, you know, Joe Schmo can't be, you know, watching the monitor. And we have production assistants that watch to make sure that this is being upheld. A close set is usually the director, the sound, the guy that holds the, the big microphone, the camera operator, the director of photography, the focus puller. It's more people than you would think. But I don't have every executive producer allowed to watch on the monitor. It's as small a group as possible, which makes the actor feel a little bit more protected. And then throughout the scene, I'm watching to make sure that nothing's poking out that shouldn't be. And if, if that happens, then I will tell the script supervisor to flag that scene so that they can't use it because her nipple popped out and that was not on her rider. And also to make sure that it looks really authentic. You know, when we have two actors, let's say on top of each other, we'll sometimes cheat it so that we're not like a few inches so that the genitals are not exactly on top of each other. So sometimes it doesn't look real. And so I'll, I'll readjust them to, to, you know, make it look like they're actually making contact. Uh, there's just a million, th- <laughs> a million <laughs> things going on as this is all happening, along with making sure that everybody is still comfortable and staying safe and that it all looks really authentic. Yeah. There is so much going on there. Yeah, I didn't even tell you like more. There's so much of it. I didn't even tell you most of it. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, just to go back to a couple of things you mentioned, you know, I thought as a sex educator that I had very specific contracts. Like I once signed a contract that said I could only endorse this one specific kind of butt plug. And, you know, some of these actors are signing contracts that say, I'm only going to show this much butt crack. So I guess yeah. they win in terms of being more specific than me. Oh, but yes. It sounds like consent is treated of the most paramount importance in these cases. And it's treated the way it should be, you know, in terms of how it is navigated in everyday life, where it is something that you can revoke at any time and that, you know, consent to one thing doesn't mean consent to everything. So it's great to hear that that model is being translated into this because it's 
easy to see. Like, you know, doing a, a sex scene on film is, you know, it's still a form of sex. And so the same rules of consent should apply in these different contexts. So I appreciate you sharing all of that and giving us this kind of inside look into how all of this works. And I also wanted to talk a little bit more about the modesty garments, but also prosthetics, because I interviewed a prosthetic designer a couple of episodes back. His name is Matthew Mungle, and he makes prosthetic penises and sometimes breastplates for performers. And one of the things that he told me that I thought was really interesting was that using prosthetics can really help to put a performer's mind at ease and allow them to be in the moment and focus on their craft because they don't have to worry about the entire world seeing their genitals and having their photos posted everywhere on the internet. And I think, you know, modesty garments can also serve that similar purpose by giving them that sense of safety and security. So can you just talk a little bit more about the important role that prosthetics and modesty garments play and just sort of giving that extra layer of security or safety to the performer? Sure. Uh, Well, there's a number of reasons why you'd use a prosthetic penis. Again, in the United States, the FCC says that you cannot show an erect penis on screen. That would be porn. And it's also very difficult filming-wise to be shooting a scene all afternoon in many different angles and for an actor to keep an erection. There's a practicality part of that, and then there's also a legal part of that. And so even if an actor wanted to, they couldn't because of the FCC ruling. So anytime you're seeing an erect penis on screen, it's a prosthetic. Anytime you see an actor touching another actor's penis, it's a prosthetic because of these FCC rulings. You can show a flaccid penis on screen that's real, but some actors still opt to have a flaccid prosthetic because they don't want to show their own penis. And there's no shame in that. It's really what makes them feel comfortable. I had the opportunity to work with one on my last show and the head of makeup used to do special effects. And so he builds these and it looks so real. It's phenomenal. And yeah, it made the actor very comfortable and they don't have to expose themselves. In, in terms of those that have a vulva, there are things so that you're not exactly exposing your own. It's um, called a merkin, uh, which has been around for hundreds of years in theater. And it's basically a pubic wig that we just glue onto your body parts that kind of uh, cover your own and make it look very real. Let's say you are an actress who is completely waxed and shaved and you've agreed to do below the waist nudity and we're doing a show in the 1800s. So that would never exist, right? And so she would then be wearing a merkin. They have some that have a pump in them and that can make it look like you're urinating. Like it's pretty advanced, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> it's, it's pretty amazing. Advanced genital technology. Love it. Uh huh. So I'm curious, going back to when you're actually on set, How do you, as an intimacy coordinator, know when to intervene and what is it that you're looking for? I think you mentioned safe words might be something that could potentially come up or, you know, you might be looking for that stray nipple or something that doesn't fit with their contract. Are you monitoring for like signs of physical discomfort on the part of the actors? What are the different things you're looking for that would say, all right, I need to intervene and step in here? Well, it's a very tricky thing to do that because it's not my set. You know, it's it's the director's set. So it's very tricky about when to speak up. And I have to know how to read the room 
And this is, again, kind of speaks to that you need to have set experience in order to do this job. Um, so I need to be able to read the room and I re- need to be able to read the director and the, the camera people and the actors that I'm working with to know, are they going to be open to me speaking up and giving an idea? Generally, if I had an idea about, let's say, you know, it'd be really great if you leaned back at this point and there was some eye contact that might sell the scene. And so I would generally talk to the director about that. I wouldn't go up directly to the actors. I would take the director aside and say, you know, I feel like we're missing a beat here. And if they did this, it would really, you know, bring the scene together. So if you're talking about creative ideas, you have to be careful just about how you're inserting yourself in that situation. If there's something that's going on that I see an actor that is in distress, I ask the AD to, uh, you know, give me a moment and I go, I just go in on set and pull them aside separately and try to find out what's going on. Again, if something is showing that shouldn't be showing, I just flag that to the um, script supervisor so they know they can't use that take. And then in between takes, we'll go in and we'll fix it and reapply the garment if it's uh, moved in some way, shape or form. I mean, I haven't really had to intervene if that's the area that you're going. I'm certainly, you know, coming up with ideas all the time and like, oh, it'd be so much better if they did this, that thing. And, and so I would, I would have to choose my moment to make sure that I'm able to express it in the right way and not ruffle people's feathers. Yeah. And I think I was asking this question just from the standpoint that a lot of what we've talked about is protecting the safety and security of the actors. And so that just, to me, raised the question of, do you ever have to like jump in and say, we need to to stop this? This has gone too far. But it sounds like that's not something that really comes up. No, I haven't had that situation where someone's been in distress or an actor goes rogue or something like that. I mean, some act because I'm an acting teacher, I can speak to actors in a language that they'll understand that other intimacy coordinators possibly don't have that area of expertise. And some actors I work with are wide open and want all of my input and some want nothing to do with me. And so I have to know who these people are. Like, for instance, I I worked on the show where one actor wanted nothing to do with me. You know, he had his own process, but his partner she wanted every single beat to be accounted for and needed to know everything. And so it's difficult in that he's like, I'm fine. I don't need you. I'm like, that's good. But your partner needs to know what you're going to be doing because we're in this together. (laughs) So we do need to work together. You know, you can't just do this stuff on the fly. Yep. So let's talk about some of the more challenging things that come up as an intimacy coordinator. You already brought up sexual trauma, which is something I was going to ask about. And it sounds like you have a pretty comprehensive process for working with the actors in terms of assessing their own history of trauma, talking to the crew about that. Before you go on, because one one thing that's really important that I give the actors, if we're doing a scene that is you know kind of outside the box or, or on the edge for them or intense, is this notion of de-rolling. And so you're playing a role. And when you're done, you have to be able to go home and not be an open wound. And so I talk about this process ahead of time so that they know that when they're working, what we're working on is like this container. And everything that we're doing on the scene exists in the container. And when we're done, we close the box of that container and it's over. And so when we finish the scene, we have some ritual of there's some completion that you're not in the scene anymore. 
And it can be something as simple as, but you don't really think about it, going home and taking a bath or putting on something soft or, you know, making sure if the actor is doing a really intense scene that they're going home and there's somebody there that they can talk to. Or sometimes it's, you know, putting on scented hand lotion that kind of takes you out of the out of your role because it's, you know, every actor works differently and some of them are very method and doing some of these scenes can be really dangerous in terms of what you're taking home with you. And so the de-rolling process I do ahead of time and then throughout the scene and then after. Yeah. And you know, that idea of de-rolling is something that I think almost all of us could benefit from, but especially those who are in high stress jobs. like And it's not taught in acting schools, basically about how do you get out of this really intense guy that you're playing. And so when it comes to these scenes, at least I can help them with that. Yeah, I love that idea. Now, something else I wanted to talk about that I think can also be a challenge in terms of intimacy coordinators. You know, you talked about a lot of these FCC restrictions in terms of things that you can and can't show. And another one that comes up is what if you have scenes involving minors? You know, sometimes there are TV shows where you have high school aged individuals who might be having their first kiss or something. And I know that some shows have gotten around this. Like I'm thinking back to Beverly Hills 90210, how they just hired actors in their 20s and 30s to play high school students, <laughs> right? Yeah. So you didn't need to worry about that. But what if you have minors on set and there is some intimacy involved? How do you navigate the complexities of that? A very good question. So minors by law and also by their SAG contract cannot portray simulated sex scenes or be involved in them or be involved in the room if that's happening. You know, let's say they're, the scene is a kid observing a couple. We shoot it separately. We shoot it in different takes. And, you know, any shot of the minor, they're not actually in the room when that, that's taking place. In terms of kissing, something that's changed, which I think is great, is that a lot of the shows are hiring us to be involved in minors kissing. Because oftentimes, it's not only their first kiss on screen, it's their first kiss ever. And it can be truly awkward. For instance, on Stranger Things, in the first season, one of the leads, actress Millie Bobby Brown, had her first kiss ever and it was on screen. And the entire day, the directors, the Duffer brothers were teasing her about it. Now, with no ill intent, but in a, in a teasing, good-natured way. And she still has interviews to these, this day, and we'll talk about it, about how it affected her. And this is years later. She's still talking about that. She was probably 14 at the time, or 13 or something. So I'll come in and work with the actors, the young performers, to help them do it in a safe way. Show them how to do a kiss, really, and, and you know, make it look good so that it looks like it's a first kiss or it looks like they've been messing around for a while and they know how to kiss. And I do exercises with them to bring them closer and closer and closer together until they finally do kiss and to make it look good but also take the weirdness out of it. You know, we'll do a lot of exercises at first that are just like really weird. So we kind of get the giggles out and we get all that strangeness out. And, you know, afterwards, they always come and thank me. They're like, I was so scared of the scene and you made it so fun. And thank you so much. And that, that's just like <laughs> the, the best thing to ever hear. 
Yeah. And it's so interesting to hear you talk about that because, you know, if you think about something like your first kiss, for many people, that is a very formative experience. It's usually something that is private. And so having that be something that is so public and is captured on film forever, you know, that gives it this extra amount of significance and impact on that individual. And so I think, again, that really speaks to the important role of intimacy coordinators and the work you're doing in particularly powerful scenes like that. Sure. But again, you can't have minors in um, simulated sex situations. Yeah. And and you'll notice I'm saying simulated sex a lot. I, mean, I don't say sex scenes because I think as a group, intimacy coordinators are trying to educate people to help them understand that they're really not having sex. It's not real. <laughs> it's all simulated. And so that's kind of a through line of what we're trying to show. Yep. I like that. And simulated sex is a good term for this and a good way of putting it in context so that you have some media literacy for knowing what you're consuming on screen. And it also helps take the stigma off the actor yep. who is going into a scene. This is not a sex scene. This is simulated. This is all pretend. In the back of their mind, it will help them understand that and take some of the onus off of it. Yep. So we're running short on time, but I have one other really important question for you, which is how do you make a simulated sex scene feel authentic, right? And I know that there are some actors in the past who have talked about how, you know, just kind of doing what feels natural in that moment or whatever is the best way to sort of capture that and to make it authentic. But we know that this needs to be a highly choreographed thing to ensure that it's respecting people's consent and boundaries and so forth. So how do you choreograph a scene so that it fits within these certain safety boundaries and consent boundaries, also respects the artistic vision, and then also still feels authentic and hot at the same time? Like That's a pretty tall order. Yeah, well, it, it really all depends on what the scene calls for, but there are things, there are some constants that apply. And like I said earlier, one of them is your breathing. Because as soon as you get sexually aroused, your breathing changes and your body starts releasing chemicals. And, you know, at that point, it's very physiological. And so you can replicate that through your breathing. If you start breathing rapidly or heavily or deep and slow, it, your body will start to think, I'm in danger <laughs> or, oh, this is really nice. And it, it starts releasing chemicals. And so the breathing really helps sell it. Eye contact really helps sell it. A certain type of touch, you know, if we're doing a really intense scene, you're grabbing at each other, you're clawing each other, you know, your hands are, you know, we're not on, on screen here, but there's a certain way that you can show your hands. If you're doing something that's really tender, there's a different movement to your hands. It's more graceful. There's a stroking. What else? I mean, I, you, you know, what I do to get inspiration is I watch films and televisions that, that has this content and I turn the sound off. Because the score and the sound are kind of distracting. And so I can just watch it and like really break it down in a very clinical way. And so, you know, I get inspiration from, you know, all this stuff that I'm seeing on film. But there's just certain things that really show urgency. And there's things that show liquidity and soft and slow and sensual. And the body movements are the things that convey that. Yeah. I'm going to go watch some silent sex scenes now because I want to break it down into my own analysis. 
you'll see it in a completely different way. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Marcy. It was a pleasure to have you here. You're welcome. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? Oh, sure. I have a website that's, it's my name, marcyleroffic.com. Fantastic. So thank you again for being here. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. 